0: Hey, good morning. I hope you are having a fantastic weekend. I hope that you are excited for the week ahead. It is time again to gather as a church. We gather every Sunday morning online and in person. In person, we're meeting outside in our field. We have pop-up tents for shade. We have people bring chairs and beach blankets. And uh, we have this kind of chill summer vibe going on. The plan right now is to continue meeting outside as long as the weather holds uh, because we are following the public health mandates, whatever that may be. And right now, if we were inside, we would all have to wear masks. And so the decision was, hey, we're just going to keep meeting outside as long as the weather holds. If you wanna know more about what we're doing in terms of uh, how we're handling the current situation with the pandemic, uh, I'm just gonna refer you to a video that was posted earlier. But the short version uh, is that we are trying to be consistent in following as best we can the public health guidelines. We wanna be consistent in loving each other and loving the world around us. And we do not wanna find enemies, we do not wanna find division. We want to find unity in and through the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. As far as things that are going on, uh, today we are having a baptism. But if you are not baptized and you'd like to be, that doesn't mean that next week we can't have a baptism. So in person, right now, we're going to have a baptism. But if you need to be or want to be baptized, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. We can make next Sunday a Baptism Sunday too. Also, we are still taking and always taking food donations for the Wichita Family Center. And if you aren't coming in person, but you'd like to donate, you can reach out and we can arrange a time for you to drop off food for that program. Finally, small groups will be restarting again in the fall, and so if you would like to be part of one, especially uh, since this is an online service, if you'd like to be part of a Zoom small group, uh, you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com and we can get you more information. If you have a Bible, open to the book of 2 John as we start our new series looking at the 10 least read books of the Bible. Hey well now we're starting a new series of Bible studies about the 10 least read books of the Bible. How do we know that they're the 10 least read? Well when everything went digital, people could start to tell and uh, websites like biblegateway.com said hey we can look and we can see that these pages, these web pages with these books of the Bible, are viewed way more than these other ones. And so Bible Gateway put out a list of the 10 least read books of the Bible. And maybe the Bible app would say, well, we agree with eight of those, but there's two different ones on our list. But I don't think the lists, whether it was Bible Gateway or Blue Letter Bible or Bible App or YouVersion or whatever, I don't think there would be a huge difference in their list. So we're going with the Bible Gateway list. Why is 2 John underread? And each week, as we study a new book um, in, the, in this series, we're going to look at why something might be underread. And why I think 2, 2 John is underread. Now, forgive me, we've just studied 1 John for a number of weeks. And so I am probably going to accidentally say 1 John when I mean 2 John. Or you might see me, just as I did now, really have to think, wait, is it 2 John? So just just saying. But the reason that 2 John is one of the 10 least read books of the Bible, I think for one thing it's vague. We don't 100% know who wrote it or who it was written to. It's possible that it was written to a person. Verse 1 says that it was written to the lady chosen by God and her children. So it's possible that this was written to a real person and her family. It's also possible that this was written in code. It's been historically, traditionally attributed to John the Apostle. And when you read it, it reads a lot like John's writing. And we also know that when John was writing, he was the last of the 12 disciples left alive and he was writing later than any other New Testament writer. And he was writing during the first empire-wide persecution. Before that, all persecutions had been in cities and regions. This was the first time that across the Roman Empire there was persecution of Christians. So it's very possible that the reason it is underread is that it was written in code, and then it was kind of kept hidden or it was written, written to a lady and her family. And so for a long time, it wasn't as widely distributed as, say, the letter to the Galatians or the Ephesians because it was meant for a person as opposed to a group of people. Incidentally, uh, this was also the case with Titus and First and Second Timothy, where they were written to a specific person and so it took longer for them to be distributed now, why aren't Titus and First and Second Timothy on this list, but Second John is? Well, I think another reason that it's under read is that it's not particularly controversial. First Timothy has some controversial verse, verses in it. People, when they hear the ten least read books of the Bible, they go Leviticus. No, Leviticus is one of the top read books of the Bible. Because there's all kinds of controversial stuff in there. And so people go and like look it up, or there's weird verses in there, or or there's a particular story that is often read. So those things get bumped way up to the list. I also think there is something to this. The idea that the reason first or sorry, 2nd John is see what I, I told you, it's going to be a little hard for me. The reason 2nd John is underread is that it's at the end of the Bible. Leviticus is towards the front. And you know what happens every new year? A couple things happen. We all say we're going to go to the gym and then we don't. And then people start through the Bible in a year Bible reading plans. And so you start and you read Genesis, you read Matthew, you read Leviticus, you read Acts. You don't get to the ends of the Old and the New Testament. And I noticed something. Most of the books on the list of least read books are towards the end so it's a vague book we we don't 100% know who it's written to or who it's written by it's not a particularly controversial book i don't think we're going to come across anything that's going to cause major debate and it's toward the end of the bible so second john is the third least read book in the bible it is the most least read book in the whole New Testament. Do with that what you will. The big idea that I got out of reading 2 John and preparing for this sermon is relational faith. We are saved individually into a collective. Now, if you grew up in certain church traditions, the emphasis was on the group, the collective. The Eastern Orthodox tend to go that way. The Some mainline or traditional churches tend to go that way. Some A lot of the Catholic traditions tend to go that way. They emphasize being part of the group. You are saved by your part that you take in the collective church family of God. What we might think of as Protestant evangelical churches they tend to emphasize, and that would be our group as well, a personal faith, an individual faith. And that is true. And when you think about our the history of our church and the tr- group of churches we're a part of, it makes sense because it started in a, in a culture that if you were born, you were just told you were a Christian. So how do you know if you have genuine saving faith? Because everyone's a Christian. And so the emphasis got put on individual personal faith. But the thing is that the Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches that we are saved individually. That there is no one who can go to God for us other than Jesus Christ. There is no priest. There is no family member. I don't save my kids. My faith doesn't save my kids. My wife's faith doesn't save me. My grandma's faith doesn't save me. I don't go to God for you. I can pray with you, I can pray for you, but I'm not, I'm not the bridge to God. No pastor is, no priest is. Jesus is our true high priest and he is the connection between humanity and the divine. So this idea of a relational faith, we are saved individually, but we are saved into a collective faith. And this idea that I believe that John is trying to get across. Now, whether it's a lady and her children or whether it's a church and John is just writing in code, I think it works either way. Personally, and we'll see in a little bit, I believe that it's written to a church just because of how it's it's written and how it reads. But I'm not going to fight you over this. This is like, if you want to go on like Adam's 10 things he could care the least about fighting over, this would be on that list. Is it a woman or is it a church? Don't care. Let's read together verse one, the elder to the chosen lady, sorry, to the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth, which lives in us and will be in us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God, the father, and from Jesus Christ, the father's son will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. The the first relational idea that I see here is this relationship between generations. John was probably in his last years. He was somewhere between, let's say, 85 and 95 years old. and, And most likely he was in his early 90s. But he knew the kids. And this is why I don't care. Is it a literal woman and her children? Or is it a church and the children of the church is who John is talking about? Doesn't matter because the same principle applies. In his later years, John knew the kids. There was a relationship between generations one of the things that I become more and more convinced of is the need for multi-generational Christianity. What I mean is this. Think about the average 22-year-old woman or man. The average 22-year-old woman or man, who do they know in their 70s or 80s that isn't directly related to them? On average, we do not have multi-generational relationships outside of our family systems. And even then, that often gets minimized because unlike previous generations where you grew up knowing the same people and never really going more than a few hours from where you were born, now you could be born in Boston but have lived the last 10 years here in Portland. Or you could grow up here in, in, you have graduated from Putnam or Milwaukee High School, and then you go off and you haven't been back home in 15 years. And so those kind of family relationships are, are very thin at best. I really believe in multi multi-genera, generational Christianity. But you gotta know the kids. And the responsibility is always gonna fall on those of us who are older and who have walked with Jesus longer. You got to know the kids. I'll give you a few examples where I was talking to the pastor of a church when I was living in California, and he was talking about the young people in his church, and nobody he listed was under the age of 50. Now, it wasn't one of those churches where everyone was older. He had young people in his church but he didn't think of them. I talked to another person this week, and when we were talking about a group of people, the only people he talked about as if they were adults were other people also in their late 50s and early 60s like he is. But adults, part of the church in their 20s and 30s, he, he did not speak of as real people. He spoke of them as if they were in the youth group. You got to know the kids. And I think it's a challenge on us to choose to get to know each other. Does that mean we're always going to be best friends? Or No, obviously not. If you're 70 years old, you're going to have more in common with somebody in their 70s or 80s or, or whatever than you are with somebody who's 16 and vice versa. You know, sometimes churches have really unreasonable expectations on the young people. And and it's like, you know, you really need to get to know the older people and get around their wisdom and everything. And it's like, yeah, but the the older folks, they're not really making it welcoming or inviting for the younger people. John knew the kids. And then it says in verse 4, it gives me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth just as the Father commanded. So either some of her these actual children had traveled to where John lived, most likely in the city of Ephesus, in what's now modern-day Turkey on the Mediterranean. They had either traveled there, literal children, or members of this church had traveled to Ephesus, and they were interacting with John. And it brought him great joy to see that they were walking in the truth. And I'll tell you, as a father of younger children, of elementary age children, The faith of my children is constantly on my mind. I want to experience my children, my children walking in the truth. I I want to experience my children serving Jesus. That doesn't mean that they should be pastors. Probably not. Maybe they'll be engineers or graphic designers or Jack right now wants to be a paleontologist. But whatever they're doing, I want to know that they are walking in the truth just as our Father in Heaven commanded. But you got to have relationship. Sometimes that means doing what you don't want to do. I took Jack. He he loves dinosaurs. I took him to the OMSI recently. Not really my thing. Going to a kids' museum... And hearing a bunch of stuff about science that I disagree with. But he's really into it. And I want relationship. And I want connection. So I went with him. John knew the kids. He interacted with the kids. And he was somebody that the kids wanted to know. The kids interacted with him. All I can say from a just practical level, how this happens is by giving up some of our own preferences. Um, You know, one of the things that I love, we went to Mexico a few years ago on a mission trip, and I cannot wait to go to Mexico again on a mission trip once the pandemic's over. But we went to Mexico and we drove from Faith on Hill Church down to Mexico. And one of the things I told the adults is this is a church-wide mission trip. It's not a youth group trip. But if we're playing music in the stereo that the kids like the high school kids and the, the young adults in their 20s, don't complain. If you don't like the hip hop, that's just how it is. But what I loved too was Mark Harris, you know, who, who's a professional driver, was, was our main driver going down. And as we were driving through Bakersfield, California, I said, Mark, what would you like to listen to? And Mark said, hey, you know, we're in Bakersfield. And there's a lot of history with, country music. In fact, Bakersfield, when it comes to the West Coast, is like the, the spiritual home of country music. He said, can we listen to some old Buck Owens and Hank Williams? And I said, sure. And we did. And we listened to these old country records. Buck Owens, Hank Williams, Merle Haggard. We're just going through like a who's who of classic country artists. And the high schoolers and the 20-year-olds probably would listen to something else if given the choice, totally chill. And the unity that I saw people in their 50s and 60s and 16-year-olds and 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds was beautiful. Relationship between generations is so key in our Christian faith. I'm saved individually, but I'm I'm saved into this collective family. And so I need to embrace our family And the six-year-old should be just as important as the 60-year-old. And the 80-year-old should be just as valued as the 28-year-old. There shouldn't be... Now, if we're going to lean one way or the other, I'm always going to lean younger because they're the future of the church. And if you think, oh, that's just you being a young pastor. You know who doesn't think I'm young? Young people do not think I'm young. But we need to have relationship between generations. Let's read on. Verse 5. And now, dear lady, I am right, not writing you a new command, but one we have from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. And as you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Now we have talked a lot about this when we studied first John. So if you haven't been with us for those studies, you can go back, Here on our Facebook page or Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and you can find our studies on Christian living in 1 John, which talked a lot about love. And this is one of the reasons why we believe that John the Apostle wrote this, is because he starts repeating a lot of things that are said in 1 John. Verse 7. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into this world. So what John is saying is, I'm telling you to walk in love because there is a lot of deceivers out there. And one of the key hallmarks of a deceiver is that they deny that Jesus Christ was real. They deny that Jesus Christ was fully human as much as he is fully God. Verse 8, Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So what John is saying is, if somebody is teaching things that are contrary to what we have already received, then they are not from God. No matter how charismatic or how winning or how big a personality they have, no matter what is happening, people say, oh, Look at this good work that they're doing. They're, they're bringing water to places that don't have clean water. That I'm thankful for that kind of thing, but that doesn't mean that they are preaching the truth. We'll read on here. Verse 10, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. What's going on there? You may know this, you may not, but here's a quick history lesson. The original Christians did not meet in church buildings like we meet today. Now, the first chance that they had to have a bigger meeting place, they built it or they rented it. So I'm not opposed to a church having a building. And I'm not opposed to that facility being nice and comfortable. There's nothing wrong with that. But the original Christians met from house to house to house. And in places like Jerusalem, when they were able, they met in public spaces like the temple courts. Now, what happens sometimes is people will read something about the church in the New Testament, and they'll assume that the church was basically like a franchise, you know, McChurch. And and so they'll say, oh, well, whatever was going on in the Ephesian church, that's exactly what was happening in the church in Thessalonica. That's not how it is. As, as the more and more that I read the scripture, I believe that churches were very different and very diverse from place to place and context to context. I believe some churches were led by a single leader and some churches were led by a group of leaders. Some churches were bigger. The church in Ephesus... Uh, was apparently a larger church. Some churches were smaller. It's possible that there was a small house church that either was meeting in this woman's house or that the the church, and he's describing uh, the church in code as the lady, that this church was meeting in a house, but they didn't have uh, a full-time <laughs> pastor or teacher Or a group of elders and teachers, the way that some of the other churches did. And we know that there were people who went from city to city preaching the gospel. The Apostle Paul did that. Barnabas did that. Apollos did that. We know from the scripture that this was the case. So it could be that what John is saying is if somebody comes to your town and they say, hey, they, they look for the Christians, they find the Christians, they say, hey, we're here to preach the gospel. When he says "Welcome me into their house, it could be talking about supporting them, like here, here's a place to stay, or it could literally be their church. You welcome them not into just your house, but that's where the church in that town or village met. And he says, anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. So if you're giving support to this person, John says it's as if you were preaching that false gospel because you're giving them a base from which to spread their deception. Remember I said that this is all about relational faith? I believe that there is some relational necessities in discipleship. And discipleship is teaching people how to follow Jesus. So that starts with preaching and proclaiming the good news. And then once somebody believes, we instruct them in the faith. I believe that right now, this is part of discipleship at Faith on Hill as I teach the Bible. Discipleship happens in our small groups as we meet together and we get to know each other and we grow in relationship and we pray for one another and we discuss the scripture together. Discipleship happens, there's people that I meet with Individually, uh, and and we talk over things, and, and we're connecting together. But there has to be some relationship. John was expecting the church, John is expecting the church to have knowledge of the gospel, so that if a teacher comes to their village, a traveling preacher comes to their village, that they would know the basic things that that are true and non-negotiable I don't think he needs them to know all of church history or all of the history of of the Hebrew scriptures I, I think he needs he expects them to know the basic truths Jesus Christ is fully God there is one God who has represented himself in three distinct persons the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit Jesus Christ is also fully human and as a human he lived a perfect life and when he was Executed on that cross, he died having no sin, but God the Father placed the sins of the world on his shoulders, and through his death, the judgment of God was satisfied. And three days later, he rose victorious over sin and death. He who was dead was now alive and seen by over 500 eyewitnesses. And 40 days after, he ascended to heaven and now sits in glory at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on behalf of his church. These are the basic things. They're non-negotiable things. We can have debates over creation and evolution. I I mentioned earlier, I went to the dinosaur exhibit at the OMSI. I'll tell you, I walked away with more questions than answers. And, and, and I think anyone who uh, believes uh, in... Be, let me rephrase this. I think it's important that somebody knows that I believe in a literal six-day creation. And I question the idea of evolution over millions and billions of years, but not because the Bible says one thing. I question it because of the science. If I found out that... Genesis chapters 1 through 11 were metaphor, and that God used a uh, evolutionary process over millions of years to create this world, it wouldn't shake my faith. I have questions, I, I'd have things that have to be worked through, but it wouldn't shake my faith. When we say the church is expected to know things, the church should hold the leadership and the disciplers accountable to certain truths. Even me. Don't just believe something because I said it. Read the scripture yourself. Study yourself so that you can say, hey, is that really there? There should be that sort of relational accountability. The church is expected to have relationship with its ministers. So that he's saying if, if anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work, let me speak very bluntly. In, the, in recent times, and in some cases just in the last couple of weeks, it has come out that certain people who claim to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ were involved in deep sin. But not only that, it's come out that some in their churches knew about it for months or maybe longer and hid it. What John is saying is, hey, you... Those people share in that wickedness. They need to repent just as if they had done the sin themselves because they share in that wickedness. A relational connection between the church and those who are ministering and discipling. Now, I grew up in a big church, 2,500 people. Did everybody know the pastor on a first-name basis or have lunch with the pastor once a year or something? No, and that's not realistic. But I'll tell you what, my my pastor growing up was available and he, he was open to connect with people. And if you were around, not just on Sunday mornings, but if you came to Wednesday night Bible studies or if you came to the Friday night discipleship classes or you went on mission trips, you got to know him. Um, <laughs> so this idea that we should be open and connected. And I'm very troubled by churches where I hear about where nobody ever gets to meet with the senior leaders, and they're kind of walled off like they're celebrities. Very troubling. But quite honestly, I mean, uh, that's not a knock on bigger churches because I know smaller churches that have all kinds of to trouble too. I think the bigger idea is a relational connection that that we would know each other in the discipleship process. And finally, verse 12. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister, who is chosen by God, send you their greetings. Now, again, this is one of the reasons why I think he's writing in code, because when you read the greeting and you read the closing, it kind of sounds like um, there's more to this than just John's writing to a, a lady and her kids that he knows but it's relationship-based church. John says, hey, I've got more I wanna tell you, but I wanna do it face-to-face. I wanna do it connected. I do not believe that our church shut down in the spring of 2020. And that's a narrative that some people have shared. Oh, you know, when the church is all shut down in March of 2020. I don't believe we shut down. I don't believe we stopped meeting. I don't believe we stopped having church. In fact, we were intentionally connected. Some people got to know people in their church better during that time. We gathered together and we were chatting uh, as the sermon was going online, but there was the chat. Uh, we prayed together over Zoom meetings and we uh, there was people that were writing cards like, they, they actually sat down and wrote something out, old-fashioned-like, and sent it to others in the church to encourage them. I don't believe that an online service is somehow wrong or not church. I don't believe that a Zoom small group or a Zoom prayer group is somehow lesser or less valid than everybody gathering in, in the same room together. I also believe that some things can only work face-to-face. I also believe that if going to church just means watching a TV show on your phone or on your, on your actual TV, and just getting a YouTube video of a sermon, that's not church. I have, I printed up here, this is a list of all of the one another commands in the Bible. Love one another. Sixteen times in the Bible we're told to love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another better than yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Build up one another. We're told that a couple of times in the scripture. Accept one another. That goes back to relationship between generations. Be like-minded towards one another. Admonish one another. Greet one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Now that's interesting because if you're supposed to forgive one another, that implies that there's going to be stuff that needs to be forgiven. Oh my gosh, you mean that people in the church can act silly or, or do something that hurts my feelings and I'm going to have to forgive them? Yep. Be patient with one another. Speak the truth in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submit to one another. That's not a popular one. Consider others better than yourself. Look to the interest of one another. Bear with one another. Teach one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Exhort one another. Stir up one another to love and good works. Show hospitality to one another. Employ the gifts that God has given us for the benefit of one another, 1 Peter 4 says. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Pray for one another. Confess your faults to one another. Do not lie to one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. If you keep biting and devouring each other, you'll be destroyed by one another. Let us not be conceited provoking and envying one another. Do not slander one another. Do not grumble against each other. All of these one another's imply that you have to be in relational connection. What is it that that John says in verse 3? Or sorry, verse 2. Because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. It's It's a collective thing. This idea of relationship-based church. I have much to write you, verse 12, but I don't want to use pen and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face. How can we obey all of these one another's if we're isolated or we're apart? I believe we have to be intentional about relationship with one another. Now, if you're watching this, that means that you're watching an online service. And, and we put effort into the online service. We make it happen every week. So I'm not against the online service. It's not going away. I do think that we can choose to be connected. It's one thing to just watch a sermon, and it's another thing to be collectively part of the family of God together. We have to be intentional about our relationship with others because it's easy to just be isolated and to be disconnected. It's easy to do that, but it's not better. And not only with each other, I think we have to be intentional with our relationships with the other churches in our community and in our area. I go and pray every Wednesday that I can with the other pastors in our community. And it's not always the thing I want to do. There's some Wednesday mornings I'd rather sleep in. Or there's some Wednesday mornings where I'd rather do something around the church and get some work done. There's some Wednesday mornings where I'm there and I'm like, really? This guy is praying that again? Oh my goodness. And yet it's important. Because I know that the church of Jesus is way bigger than our church. And that the church of Jesus is doing stuff beyond our four walls. And I want to have relationship. And not just for us, but... So that, you know, one of the things it says is bear one another's burdens. I love having relationship with other churches so that in our time of need, they can come alongside us. And in their time of need, we can come alongside them. During COVID, we opened our doors to some churches that had lost their meeting space. They couldn't rent anymore. And so they used our fellowship hall to meet as a church. Happy to do it. That was a thing that we were blessed to do. To be connected, to here, I'll tell you something else. We heard about a need, a church in our Conference of Churches. And so I said, hey, we've got that thing they need and we're not using it. Let's send it to them. The the idea that we can be connected with each other. And our Conference of Churches, you might have noticed a while back, we upgraded the quality of the video. That came from from a, a grant donation from our Conference of Churches. So to be connected, not just we're not isolated and individually and then collectively as a church, we're not isolated from the rest of the churches. We are together on God's mission. And it breaks my heart to see churches that are off on their own, to see individual Christians that are off on their own, because God wants so much more and so much better. So if you're saying, hey, I'm online and I'm online because I just don't feel comfortable meeting in person, that's fine. As our Zoom meetings start back up again, our small groups, however it is, be connected. Email, check check in, connect. Find a way so that you can live out these one another commands, so that you can have relationship, because some things cannot be done without other Christians around. Some things cannot be done in isolation or separation. Everything that I see here in 2 John is about relational faith. John, this elderly pastor, had relationship with young people, whether they were the children of a a literal person or they were the children of a church. He had relationship with them and they had relationship with him. And then John says, expect to have relationship with the people doing the discipling. And then finally he says, hey, I'd like to come and see you because there's only so much I can write. I need to be with you and I need to be connected to you. And I think that invitation to relationship, not just with Jesus, but with his people, is open and it is there. And if you are not a Christian, the first invitation is the relationship with God. I mean, you can belong here at church, but to believe is so important. It's the most important thing. But once we do believe and we have saving faith, I believe that we will not grow like we can and we should apart or alone. We're stronger together. We're better together. Individually, I am better with my church family. Collectively as a church, we are better with the other churches in our community and around the world. I want to invite you as we enter this time of prayer, maybe that's the thing to pray. Lord, help me to have a relational faith. God has reached out to us and invited us into relationship with Him and brought us into this family. And it's on to us to say yes and respond to that. If I said anything that was challenging or that you didn't agree with or wasn't clear, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. I'd love to have a conversation with you. Uh, the worst thing in the world to me is if, if, if I say something, you're like, I think that's wrong, and then you just walk away. I'd rather hear, and, and maybe I was wrong or I didn't say something clearly or maybe we just have a good chance to talk. I'll invite you to stick around and pray with us as we continue to worship Jesus through prayer. Well, now that we have heard from God, we want to speak back to him. And I believe that God speaks to us as we gather together as we study his word and we want to respond. And so I want to invite you to enter a posture of prayer, whatever that looks like. Sitting, standing, eyes opened, eyes closed, hands lifted, hands folded, whatever that is. A posture of prayer as we go before our God and our Savior. Holy Father, thank you that you have the whole world in your hands. In a world of uncertainty and in a season of uncertainty, you are certain. You are sovereign. You are Lord over all things. And we trust in you. We trust in you. Father, we acknowledge your greatness, your love, your holiness, your mercy. In this moment, I want to invite you to be free with using the pause button if you need to. But as we are praying, I would invite you to speak out, out loud, if if you feel comfortable. Speak out loud an attribute of God, his love, his grace, his power, his forgiveness. Whatever it is that comes to your mind first, speak it out and then praise God. Thank God for it. Lord, I thank you for your great mercy and compassion. I thank you that you have looked on your enemies to make us friends. I thank you that you have looked on the widow and the orphan and shown mercy. Lord, I thank you for your justice. I thank you that those who have oppressed the widow and the orphan will not go unpunished, that your justice will be satisfied. And it feels hard to see that sometimes, Lord. So we pray for faith. And Lord, we know in faith that you have great power. And the injustice that we see in the world is not beyond your knowledge or your reach. And so I'd invite you to speak out an injustice, a tragedy, something that has grieved your heart this week, and bring it before God. Feel free again to hit the pause button to take time to pray over these things. And Lord, I admit I was grieved this week as I read in the national news uh, about a woman and her children who were horribly mistreated by police in, in, in a town not far from where I used to live in California only because she was black. Lord, I pray for justice. I pray you would comfort her and her family. I pray that you would Help them to come to a place of mercy and forgiveness in their own hearts, not for any other reason that that bitterness and anger destroy us on the inside. And I pray for her and her family. Lord, this week I was so grieved as we saw the situation in, in Afghanistan. Lord, we pray for our sisters and our brothers there, Christians who now fear for their lives and may not live to see the end of this month. We pray for women and young girls who live under threat of violence. We pray for young boys who live under the threat of violence as well in all kinds of different ways from um, abuse to forced conscription into, to military groups. Lord, we pray for mercy for that land. We pray for peace. We pray that you would be with refugees who have come to our country. Help us to welcome them well. And Lord, we know that you are not just involved in the affairs of the world, but you are involved in the affairs of our lives, and you are a healer. And so I'd invite you right now to speak out the name of somebody you know who is sick, who needs healing, and to pray for them. Lord, I pray for the many who are on our our list to pray for, who who have cancer, who need transplants, who have uh, all chronic health issues. Lord, we pray for uh, the person in our church this week who has COVID, that you would bring full healing to their body. Lord, we pray and ask that you would show yourself the great healer. Show yourself powerful in the bodies, the physical bodies of these people. And Lord, finally, we know that our bodies will eventually die, but our souls live forever and we pray for those who do not know you lord i pray for family members who do not know you i pray for neighbors who do not know you maybe you have a coworker somebody you go to school with speak out their names ask jesus to reach into their lives pray for grace on them and lord we do pray for every name that is mentioned. Lord, show us how we can pray more for them. Show us how we can minister your truth to them. Lord Jesus, thank you that you saved us from the grave. You saved us from the justice that our sins deserved and you took it on yourself. Lord, I pray that you would remind us how much we have been saved from, how much we have been forgiven. And Lord, help us to live in the reality of that forgiveness. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who has saved us from sin and death, who heals the sick, who cares for the widow and the orphan and the refugee. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. God loves you. And God is with you this week. I pray that you'd be aware of that. We'll see you next week at 10.30 a.m.